0: So you remember how in our last episode, we told you about these wars, the Cod Wars, that you'd probably never even heard about.
1: Conveyor belt supply of fish to Grimsby, Hull, and Fleetwood may shrink to a trickle if British trawlers are kept outside Iceland's 12-mile limit. That's the grim prospect facing the great fishing industry and millions of housewives. While this was happening, the gunboat Aeja was successfully harassing trawlers 40 miles south. Iceland's government hopes that with the enormous expense of the present Cod War, Britain will give way. The British government hopes Iceland will do the same. Meanwhile, watched by warships, tugs and aircraft, the fishermen just go on trying to catch fish.
2: So I actually remember the uh, scenes on television uh, in Britain of uh, Icelandic trawlers and Coast Guard battling with the Brits.
0: Fisheries expert Jim Cannon will tell you that the whole affair wasn't a real war. But it did have some major impacts on how global fisheries work today. Canon is with the Hawaii-based Sustainable Fisheries Partnership.
2: And that led to the introduction of exclusive economic zones, where the high seas were effectively reduced uh, and the areas under national jurisdiction were increased. Uh, And it seems like a long time ago, but we're actually still building the system from that.
0: You're listening to The Catch, a podcast from foreign policy about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. I'm Bruksandra Guidi. This time around, we're exploring the Arctic waters around Norway and focusing on cod, the fish that spawned not one, but three different wars out at sea between 1958 and 1975. Today, we bring you episode three, Make the North Great Again. After the Cod Wars ended in the 1970s, the demand for cod kept growing. And it wasn't just the Brits who had developed a taste for cod. In the U.S., the people's fish had become a staple in a quintessentially American restaurant.
1: Oh, yes, McDonald's is our kind of place. We're especially find of their filet fish sandwiches.
2: I just love McDonald's filet fish sandwiches. So in the mid-80s, before that, McDonald's was buying predominantly, I think in fact almost exclusively, North Atlantic cod for the fillet of fish sandwich worldwide.
3: Let the fish that catches people catch you.
0: These days, McDonald's boasts sales of more than 300 million fillet of fish sandwiches a year. Fun fact a quarter of those sales happen during Lent, you know, because Catholics shouldn't be eating meat around Easter. So you can see how having a steady supply of fish is pretty important for the company's bottom line. Around the 80s, the Canadian cod fishery in the Northeast, in Newfoundland, where McDonald's sourced its whitefish, just crashed. In
2: 1989, 1991, everyone had to switch. They all had to look for alternative sources.
0: Jim Cannon's team was called in. They needed to find a replacement for Canadian cod, fast.
2: Find me some unexploited, underexploited whitefish that can replace cod. And we're like, there isn't any. Everything is fully exploited or overexploited. There is no underexploited stock. Suddenly, all
0: eyes turn to that maritime region between Iceland and Russia, around the Norwegian and Barents seas. It's a place I got to see up close. If you look at it on a map, the town of Varda is on the fjord directly across from Kirkenes, where we were in our first episode, right on the Russian border. The fjords are these long inlets that were formed when glaciers cut into the bedrock millions of years ago. Fjord literally means channel in Norwegian. So if you were a bird, Varda would have been right there, just across the water from Kirkenes. But by car, it took us four hours to drive around and around the fjords. The curvy drive was gorgeous. The sky was gray. In fact, it snowed for part of it. But we bordered the cobalt blue water most of the time to our right and saw packs of reindeers and sea eagles, bigger than any bird of prey I'd seen before. There were so few cars on the road. The population of Norway is only 5 million people and the north is particularly quiet. Halfway to Varda, we stopped at the Sea Sami Museum in Waringerboten, a one level building off the side of the road. The Sami are descendants of nomadic peoples who have been living in modern day Northern Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Russia for thousands of years. Like so many indigenous peoples around the world, They have faced discrimination and abuse and forced assimilation over the centuries.
3: Mm.
0: Eskil tells me that in recent years, he's found out that his mother's ancestors are Sami as well. At the museum, we walk into an exhibit full of dioramas explaining the Sami connection to the coast. We're in the Sami Museum on our way to Vatsa and Varda. And it shows all the traditional ways in which the Sami people fished, particularly along the coast and they also
1: fished along the rivers.
0: They still do. They also herd sheep and reindeer. Those are some of the animal sounds you're hearing behind me, part of the installation. This is the cod is the most important fish resource in the Varang- Varangir fjord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stationary coastal cod may be fished all year round while the most intensive fisheries are carried out in spring in the spawning season when the spawning cod enters the fjord. Well, at one point it could be fished year round.
3: Yeah, that, that's when the coastal cod was like not really almost driven to extinction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that was up till the 80s. Mm. So they were able to live off the cod all year round.
0: Until the 80s, Sammy and other fishers would catch cod in the spring after it came to the fjords in the winter to spawn. But now these coastal cod are endangered and almost wiped out along the fjords. This wouldn't be the only time that Norway experienced a near collapse of its fisheries. There are historical records of cod's disappearance along Western Norway in the mid 17th century. And it happened again by the 18th century leading to hunger and hardship for traditional fisher communities all along the western coast. You'll remember that the 1980s was a time when Canada's North Atlantic cod was facing collapse, which is why McDonald's had hired Jim Cannon to find a new fish for their filet of fish sandwiches.
2: And I always remember one of them saying to me, you know, what on earth are you asking us to do? We're an American company. We sell burgers. And I'm like, yeah, but your suppliers, because of the way you run your business, you've developed these huge relationships with suppliers and these suppliers have grown into some of the largest seafood suppliers worldwide. Let's see what they can do.
0: How would you describe this great importance that cod has for all these different, very different societies and cultures, right? You mentioned Britain, Iceland, Norway.
2: Cod is as important to some cultures in Europe And in Canada, actually, as, for example, crab is to people in Maryland, or snapper is to people in Florida, shrimp is to people in Alabama, salmon is to people in Oregon. I mean, it's the fish you grew up with. It's the fish everyone knows.
0: The couple years Jim and his team spent reviewing supply chains led to a few important outcomes. They brought all players to the table—fishers, distributors, processing plants— And their findings persuaded McDonald's to recognize that the way cod was being fished wasn't sustainable in Canada and that switching to cod in Norway would only put that population in jeopardy as well. In Norway, this era led to the introduction of new fisheries management policies and to rebuilding the cod stocks. But on the business side of things, Jim's contributions were key. He and his team helped McDonald's, this massive multinational, to really consider its global footprint when it comes to supply chains. To make a long story short, they paved the way for more sustainable fishing practices. It's also the reason cod is no longer in filet of fish sandwiches.
2: So all these things that we are now familiar with in the sustainable seafood debate really go back to that, that one fishery and the response. What happened in 91, 92 was that folks who had been using cod had to switch to other species. And so they switched to things like Sath and haddock and uh, a lot of companies switched to uh, U.S. pollock.
0: It's actually not hard to imagine what would have happened to cod around Norway if businesses like McDonald's had not taken those steps toward sustainability decades ago. Driving around here, Eskild and I could see firsthand just how vulnerable the fishing industry is to outside shocks. When we get to Varda, the sky just opens up and a bright afternoon sun comes out. It's still freezing, but sunny, and it feels like a scene out of a movie. We head straight to one of the docks. That's where we see a mural in big red letters. It reads, make the north great again. It's a mockery of the Trump Republican slogan, but more importantly, it's a sign of this town's economic comeback. There's one ship out of the water, awaiting repairs. It's Svein Huddled Holmes' ship. For 15 years, he'd been remodeling historical buildings, until 2018, when Svein discovered fishing. The way he tells it, it's like he was hit by lightning one day.
3: If you want to go, like, or build something up, and you need to go in a way all in, and there's so much to learn. I, my background, I didn't know even how to enter a boat when I started, so I had a long way to go. And uh, yeah, now I've been fishing for five years, and uh, I have a couple of boats, and uh, now a harbor, and uh,
0: yeah. Yes, you heard that right. In five years' time, Svein went from not knowing how to enter a fishing boat. To owning two of them.
3: It's a short amount of time. Yeah, we've been we've been, we've been very it's been very successful in a way. Also, that we've been happy to succeed with that.
0: Now, that's really interesting because the narrative is that fishing collapsed, the fishing industry collapsed here. You were saying no, it's actually the
1: opposite.
3: Yeah, it, it, it did collapse. It's like I I'm born in 1978, and I, I kind of grew up. Yeah. Like I, it's Fair. my hometown, and when I grew up. It was. Uh, Businesses everywhere, like right where we are standing right now was the biggest one. It was owned in a cooperative by Varda people, fishermen and industry workers. There were over 200 workers here. It 24-7. The machine was always going. They were drying fish and selling it, but and there was a lot of things going on. Like the cod basically collapsed during the 80s, 90s.
0: There were a lot of reasons why Varda's fishing industry collapsed. Newer trawlers could fish in larger areas and fish deeper and for a longer time. A 1960s civil war in Nigeria meant that demand for cod diminished there. And by the 1990s, a lot of fish processing jobs were going elsewhere, to Denmark and Poland within the EU market, but also as far as China, which had lower labor costs.
3: So, um, yeah, many things happening uh, this, almost like Jose, simultaneously. And then um, that led to one bankruptcy and another one and a third one and, and f- very few fishermen. So there was, uh, I think at one time here we were down in 15 boats or something like this. It's so, very volatile, though. Yeah, yeah, it is.
0: What is your thinking to kind of stay in
2: fishing?
3: Yeah, it, it is very challenging, especially for, for like my type of boat is is we are boats under 11 meters basically in this group we are fishing and uh, we are very um, place-based you know we stay mostly fish out two three hours around the island if fishing goes down in our area then we are vulnerable so of course it's it's difficult to getting uh, very ambitious. I, I feel myself, I've been a little bit, almost too ambitious now, both buying and investing, and uh, now interest rates is going up, fishing is going down, and of course, it's, it's, it's dangerous times.
0: But fishing is always fickle, unpredictable, dependent on so many factors. It is a part of nature, after all. Despite all this, Svein is feeling hopeful about a local homegrown effort that should make those storms easier to weather. Local fishers in Varda are working collectively by co-owning boats and fishing together during the season so that they can keep their businesses in the hands of local families and make a living from them.
3: The more fishermen join, like we, like we were 15 boats or something like this, but now we are over 100 boats. But just since I started five years ago, at least 40 new boats came.
0: One way they're flourishing is by going after a very coveted species, king crab. These fishers also benefit from the introduction of indigenous fishing rights that started in the early 2000s, benefiting smaller boats and subsistence practices. More on that in later episodes. We can see those boats in the water from where we're standing. The seagulls are circling them, hoping to find a catch, too. Very few of them seem to have gone out today. It's windy out. Svein says that, as soon as he finishes repairing the thirty six foot boat we're standing next to, he'll take it out on the water. He's a couple of months late already for cod fishing season.
3: Yeah, so put it up, uh, two months too late so it's been bad weather so you need good weather, warm weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so so go so well.
0: Svein is an example of what can happen when people come together to help each other out, to solve problems. Interestingly enough, Varda is actually famous for a time when people didn't come together during a fishing crisis. In fact, it nearly destroyed the town. You see, Varda is most famous for its witch trials. You could say it's the Salem of Norway. Back in the 17th century, more than 90 women, both Sami and Norwegian, were sentenced to death here. I'm asking Eskild if we can go to the memorial. It's called the Steel Memorial in an area called the Gates of Hell.
3: You know, when they did these witch processes, they admitted that this was the place where all the women that were
2: witches convened to worship Satan I see. and make bad weather.
0: Right, and so the, it became a problem when there was bad weather and like there people weren't able to fish. Well, all because kinds of, of the bad ba- weather.
2: All kinds of bad luck happening to the local communities were like. Uh, Blamed on this on various women, but it was mostly you know why weather so bad, and why aren't we getting any fish? Because we are great believers in God, and God would protect us. So if He doesn't protect us, there must be something, someone trying to obstruct.
0: Luckily, the days of scapegoating women for bad fishing days, in Varda at least, seem to be long past. We only get to drive near the gates of hell. Might as well. The place is eerily beautiful and creepy, with these dramatic drops into the dark blue sea. It's almost night. We need to make it to our next interview. We arrive at a modern building in central Varda, next to the city hall. It's the office of a local, all-volunteer civil society organization, Prore, or Coastal Rebellion. Inside, we meet Eva-Lisa Robertson and her cherubic baby boy, Edwin. Hey. Hey. And then we meet local school teacher and organizer Turbien Eriksson, a cheerful guy in his 50s. Can, this,
1: uh, this picture now we show, uh, shows... You uh, can see You can see it, but you have to maybe in the podcast explain it. If you, you look explain. closer to it, it, exp- it explains everything.
0: Turbien and Eva-Lisa... Are showing us the cover of a book they created. It shows a trawler dragging a net across a seafloor that's catching not just cod, but also people, entire towns.
1: And it's made in the 1970s, in the long before we started. Long before we started. It's from an artist in Watson called Arvid Sven. Yes. Uh, and that explains what, what the cod means to all the coastal communities in in Norway, and maybe in the world, I guess.
0: Coastal Rebellion is a really unique effort. They do everything from lobby politicians for more community-oriented policies. They stage parties to get people involved in fishing communities, host film festivals, and they have artists doing installations. They also promote sea conservation. Basically, their main message is, natural resources belong to the people. COD should nourish communities in Norway, not just abroad. Um, so, both of you come from, from fishing families, or yeah. done fishing yourselves, no. so or how is that, uh, that?
1: I think everybody that lives uh, along the coast have a, a connection. And my brother is a fisherman and my uncle, but… Yeah, not my, not my, my, my grandfather was a fisherman, mm-hmm.
3: my And you older, also... my
1: other grandfather made the equipment for mm-hmm. And, and it's, fishing, it's not boats. only about the fishermen, yeah. it's also about the work in the industry on land. Yeah. And maybe that's uh, where the biggest loss mm. have been. It That's uh, about exactly. the fish factories.
0: Eva-Lisa used to work at one of those fish factories or fish processing plants. She calls it her first education. Everyone in Varda came up in those jobs, she says. Mm.
1: Uh, and this is what the fish mean to people because... They know if we don't have the fish, it's not the future for our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe with that the fish goes down, the population goes down. And, mm-hmm. and now it's only 10 kids each year that are born in Vardø. And it used to be 20, 30. And when he w- was born, there, you were 50. Yeah,
2: 59.
0: To be clear, Evelisa saying that in Vardø, the birth rate and the catch are tied together. And this is true for so many rural communities in Norway, particularly here in the north. It's a matter of life or death for these towns. If there is no cod, there are no children. It's that simple. This realization of how vital cod is to Norway is seen on a national level as well. Over the years, the country has tried to develop ways to protect species like cod, fishers, and the industry. While not perfect, Norway's laws have become a model for what could be done in other parts of the world. Again, here's fishing supply chain expert Jim Cannon.
2: The example we're talking about, Norway, the fishermen were incredibly well organized. All the way back to the 1970s, they, they've been very well organized. But that's not true in most of the fisheries worldwide. In most of the fisheries worldwide, and particularly the small-scale fisheries component or the artisanal component they don't have security of tenure, they don't have the right to be involved in the management of the resource at all, and that's a disaster. So in most fisheries, like most small-scale fisheries around the world, the priority is actually helping the fishermen get organized and changing the law to give them security of tenure, and critically, the right to co-manage the resource. Co-manage means they help collect the data, they participate in the regulatory design, and they will help in the enforcement. And if you get it right, it works very well.
0: That if is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Jim concedes that many other countries don't have the same resources as Norway to implement these social changes and provide a safety net to fishers. But in Varda, it almost feels like they have no other choice but to try and save what they have. The loss of fishing isn't just about the economy. It feels like an existential threat. Make the North Great Again isn't the only eye-catching street art we find in Varda. Near the wharf, there's this big painting of a sami fisher holding a cod four times bigger than his head. It's called In Cod We Trust by the artist Pobel, who's like a Norwegian Banksy. And there's another painted on the side of an abandoned fish plant. In huge letters, it reads, It's not down on any map. True places never are. It takes me a while to unpack that one. I like it. You could say that Varda is one of those places that's not down on any map. Its population is barely 2,000. One out of every 10 people here has left town in the past decade. It's a cold place. In the winter, temperatures here reach the negative 20s. But it's a very tight-knit community, the region's oldest fishing village, with a storied history and with locals that want to be writing its new chapters way into the future. Next on The Catch, instead of going out fishing, what if we were to bring the fish to you? We explore fish farming and whether it's a boost or an obstacle to sustainable fishing practices. And that's it for episode three of The Catch. Our show is a production of foreign policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, and Avan Munoz. Special thanks to my co-reporter Eskild Johansen. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts or head over to foreignpolicy.com where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for listening. I'm Roxandra Guiri, and I'll see you next week.